Hello, Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in February in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow yourself 15 minutes in the dark for your eyes to become sensitive and remember not to look at a mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode. The winter hexagon is a giant asterism containing six of the brightest stars in the night sky. Soaring overhead at around 9pm, this asterism is made up of the stars Rigel, Aldebaran, Capella, Procyon, Sirius and Pollux. The winter hexagon is easy to spot. Begin your journey at the bright white blue star Rigel in the constellation of Orion the Hunter and make your way anti-clockwise around the sky, hopping from star to star. A number of deep sky objects can be found inside the winter hexagon, including nebulae such as the Orion and Rosette nebulae and star clusters such as the interestingly named Salt and Pepper cluster as well as M38, the starfish cluster. Another asterism lies inside the winter hexagon. Join the stars Betelgeuse, Procyon and Sirius and you'll form the winter triangle. Now following the winter hexagon across the sky is the constellation Hydra, the water snake. It is the largest constellation in the night sky and contains a number of cosmic treats for observers. One such object is the ghost of Jupiter, a planetary nebula roughly 1,400 light-years from the Earth. To early observers, the nebula appeared planet-like through a small telescope and reminded them of the planet Jupiter, hence its name. A planetary nebula forms when a sun-like star has reached the end of its life, shedding its outer layers of material and exposing the remnant of its core, a hot white dwarf star. The white dwarf star gives off ultraviolet radiation, which ionizes the shed material, causing it to glow, producing a beautiful planetary nebula. Auriga the charioteer is one of the prominent winter constellations. To find it, search for the distinct V-shaped pattern of stars that make up the head of Taurus the bull. Follow the northern horn of the bull up to the star Alnath, the star at the tip of the bull's horn. Interestingly, Alnath used to have the designation of Gamma Aurigae, but the star was reassigned to the constellation of Taurus and so is now known as Beta Tauri. A circular pattern of stars forms the constellation of Auriga and the brighter star, Capella, marks the charioteer's left shoulder. Look nearby Capella for an asterism consisting of a small triangle of stars. The asterism is known as the Kids because the name Capella is Latin for a female goat. Now different cultures around the world have given names to the full moon of each month. Most of the names used today come from Native American culture. This month's full moon, which falls on February the 9th, is known as the Snow Moon because the month of February coincides with cold and snowy weather in North America. Shining brightly below the full moon is the blue-white star Regulus. To the unaided eye, Regulus appears to be a single star, but it is a member of a quadruple star system. Through a good pair of binoculars, you might be able to see two points of light. 
The brighter of the two is Regulus A, whose stellar companion is thought to be a white dwarf star. The other two companions themselves, gravitationally bound, is the fainter of the two points of light. Venus continues to dominate the southwest sky this month, shining brightly in the sky for a few hours after sunset. But not all of the planets are as easy to spot as Venus. The planet Mercury is more challenging to observe because it often gets lost in the glare of the sun. February 10th will provide you with your best chance of spotting Mercury as the planet reaches greatest eastern elongation on this day. Look towards the southwestern horizon around an hour after sunset and you will see Mercury, although it's easily outshone by brilliant Venus. For some other planetary treats, you'll need to search the early morning sky and luckily, for observers, a waning crescent moon will help you find them. At around 6.30am on the mornings of February 18th to 20th, the moon will pass by the planets Mars, Jupiter and then Saturn. Now if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Hello listeners, welcome back to the cosmic news part of our podcast and this is the part of the podcast where Patricia and myself pick our favourite news stories from the past month and we explore them in a bit more detail and share those stories with you. And this month, Patricia, we're going to get you to go first. So what news story have you found in the past month that has really tickled your astronomy bones? Well, Dar, um, in case... Anyways, unaware, we are in the midst of winter, and although the nights are cold, we are all enjoying the wonderful winter constellations, including the constellation of Orion the oh, Hunter. Don't we all love it? Now, this is the first constellation I've ever seen or ever saw, um, and it's a really good one, especially if you've not done stargazing before, right? That's certainly true, and that's down to the fact that Orion is possibly one of the easiest constellations to spot. You just have to search for the three stars in a neat row that form Orion's belt. And once you've spotted that, you know you are looking at uh, the constellation of Orion. Now, my story this month is actually about one of the stars of Orion, the red star Betelgeuse. And I've chosen to talk about Betelgeuse because it has been popping up in the news and on social media since around December of last year. And the reason for this is because Betelgeuse has been getting fainter and it's currently the faintest it has been in a century of observations. Now, Betelgeuse is a really bright star, right? It's like the 10th brightest star in the sky, or at least was. Well, you're quite right. Betelgeuse, if you look in any catalogue or any book, it's in that top 10 list of the brightest stars in the night sky. But to give you an idea of how faint it is now, if we were to re-rank stars according to their brightness, Betelgeuse would drop all the way down to number 21. Wow, that's like dropping some pretty significant figures down the ranks. But I mean, it's still visible, just noticeably dimmer. Yeah, so anyone who's observed Orion over the years, You've always been able to quite easily make out Betelgeuse, not only because of its red colour, but because of its brightness. But certainly if you have a look at the constellation now, it's noticeable that it's fainter. So obviously the question is, well, what's 
going on at Beetlejuice? Well, Beetlejuice is an enormous red supergiant that's actually slowly making its way towards the end of its life. To give you an idea of how big Beetlejuice, if we were to somehow magically transport it through space and put it right at the center of our solar system, it would swallow all of the planets all the way up to round about the orbit of Jupiter. It's possible Jupiter might even be swallowed up. Wait, so this star would swallow up all of our inner planets? Like this star's surface would extend out for pretty much the entire like inner, inner solar system? Yeah. So in case anyone was wondering about sizes of stars in the universe, well, our sun is certainly an average-sized star, especially compared to Betelgeuse. Now, Betelgeuse will end its life in a supernova explosion. That is the fate for that star, and it will be a violent and highly energetic event that will blow the star apart. We just don't know when it will go supernova. So it could happen right now. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in a hundred thousand years time. But astronomers say that's relatively soon. Yeah, compared to the sort of ages that we work with in the universe, that for us is in the blink of an eye. I should also point out that at this stage that it is possible that Betelgeuse may have already gone supernova, but we don't know about it yet. Simply because light from Betelgeuse takes about 600 years to reach us. So this star is roughly 600 light years away. Light travels at a finite yet very, very fast speed. So when we're looking at the star in the sky, we're not looking at it as it is now. We're looking at that star as it was about 600 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So that's what makes it a bit tricky because we're not sure when it's going to go supernova and as i say maybe it already has we just don't know but when it does go supernova it's expected to be as bright as a full moon which means that even if the constellation of orion was up during the daytime you would still be able to see the light from the supernova explosion. That is how bright we're expecting it to be. Well, let's hope it goes supernova in the summer because, I mean, we don't see Orion here in the summer because it's our winter constellation in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's up in the sky during the day, so maybe we'll be able to get a glimpse of it in our summer skies one time. Well, that could happen, and we also suspect that it would be up, sort of shining there in the sky for a couple of months that's kind of what we're expecting to happen when Betelgeuse goes supernova. Now, Betelgeuse is also known to pulsate. So when a star pulsates, it physically expands and contracts, and that causes changes to its size, obviously, and that leads to changes in its surface temperature, which therefore causes observable changes in brightness. So Betelgeuse actually does vary in brightness it's been known to do this and it turns out that Betelgeuse has actually got multiple periods of variation where its brightness dims and then returns back to normal. Now one cycle of brightness changes actually repeats every roughly 425 days so in other words from the time it starts to get dim all the way through its dimmest point by the time it returns back to normal that's a 425 day cycle and then it will start to repeat that process so it happens and we know it to happen but then there's another cycle 
that repeats every six years. So there are a couple of different cycles. Some of the shorter changes in brightness that we see in Betelgeuse, we kind of suspect that they may be due to enormous sunspots that form on Betelgeuse, and that we also might be bright blobs of gas that are sort of being carried to the surface of Betelgeuse, so which leads to these all of a sudden increase in brightness, and then when those blobs of material make their way back down through the atmosphere, then obviously you don't have that bright spot anymore. So as I mentioned, we've, it's been a century of observations and astronomers have watched over that time has, as Betelgeuse has sort of brightened and then dimmed again and again. So in October of last year, when it started dimming again, well, no okay. one batted an eyelid, No one they? batted an eyelid. But by December, astronomers realized that something was going on because Betelgeuse all of a sudden was now fainter at that point already than we'd ever seen it before. And it's continuing to get fainter. Even at the time of this podcast recording, it's still getting fainter. So this has led some people and some astronomers to wonder if Betelgeuse is about to go supernova. To see a star go supernova, to actually physically see it in the sky would be really, really cool. It it would be, but again, so we have to slow down because the question is, is it going to blow up? Ah. Is it going to go supernova? We're not sure. This is a typical astronomer's response, isn't it? We're just not sure. And the reason we're not sure is because some astronomers suspect that the reason it's getting fainter and the reason it's fainter than what we've ever seen it to be before is simply because two of its cycles are sort of occurring at the same point. So in other words, they suspect that two of these cycles or these changes in brightness are both reaching their minimum points at exactly the same time, which combined is producing this dip that we've not yet seen before. If that is the case, then based on our observations that we've made so far, at some point we'll see a turnaround in the brightness and it'll make its way back up to its normal levels. But... If it doesn't return to normal and it continues to get fainter, then all bets are off because then we don't understand what is happening at Betelgeuse and the star will most likely become the focus of an intense worldwide observing campaign. And you mentioned it would be really, really exciting to see a supernova and it's certainly true that it's really rare for us to actually watch um possibly i don't think we may have seen it before to see a star through all of those final stages before it blows up because typically with supernovae we'll all of a sudden just notice a bright uh, brightening in the sky somewhere but we haven't seen what's been happening to that point unless that star has been observed and that is really rare if as I say, possible it's never happened before. So if Betelgeuse is about to go supernova, we will be able to gather an incredible amount of useful information and we'll be able to watch as a star reaches the end of its life. And it may be really nice, actually, that because it's uh, an easily observable star, it's a very common star, that lots of people around the world will be able to watch it as it's making its way through this transition. And that doesn't mean just, you know, your professional astronomers. That could mean even amateur astronomers in their back garden. And you've raised a really good point here because if you are a keen observer, so if there are people listening to the podcast, they're keen observers and actually do obtain their own data, 
please get data on Betelgeuse. Astronomers welcome these observations and there are many websites and astronomy groups that you can submit your data to. Any observation at this point is a useful observational data point. And of course, if the sky is clear tonight, then head out and have a look at Betelgeuse because you never know when it will blow up and who knows, it might be tonight, Dora. Oh, don't tempt us. We're all going to be looking out, hoping for this bright flash to appear. Um, but nevertheless, uh, a really good observing opportunity. And for anyone that's not done any stargazing before, Orion, Betelgeuse, Rigel, great stars and a, a star pattern to look out for. Yeah, and also nice bit point perhaps to end the story with is once Betelgeuse has gone supernova and eventually does fade from view, when we look up at Orion, it will no longer be there. It'll be missing his shoulder. Yeah. Oh, what a point to end on. A star constellation, now missing a star, and now no longer Orion. It's kind of Orion through battle with a with a shoulder missing. Poor Orion. So a brilliant story to start us off there. I've got something perhaps a little closer to home. A story that's come from uh, research that's been done by researchers from the United States and Japan. So different groups working together. Uh, and they've unveiled the possible origins to uh, our cosmic neighborhood's great divide. So when we look at our solar system, we have a very clear split between the rocky planets and our gas giants. The great divide is known as that thing that sort of separated our solar system just after our sun formed. And it has meant that we have remained with the rocky planets on one side and the gas giants on the other. But actually, when we look at other star systems now, we've had the ability for the past 30 years or so to detect exoplanets. Our solar system isn't really a baseline for every other star system we've seen. Yeah, and that's certainly very interesting because we assumed we understood planetary formation to a T because we looked at our solar system and we're like, we understand it. And then we started to find other planetary systems and that made us scratch our heads because they were really puzzling and we realized we don't really understand planetary formation processes. It's a frustrating but also a really exciting thing. When we look at other star systems, we find what scientists call hot Jupiters. So there are these huge gas planets but they're not found far from their stars or very far like Jupiter is. They're found really, really close to their stars. And it's why don't we have that in our solar system? So very clearly in our solar system, we have this great divide and it separates the planets out and they're made of fundamentally different things. We've got the rocky planets closer to the sun, the gas giants much further out. So the big question is sort of how and why did this happen? Now it's thought that our solar system in the very early parts of its formation was split into at least two separate regions. And that was a like a natural structure that just emerged from the way that the disk of gas and dust evolved around our newly formed sun. So we would expect that uh, things like the heavier gases and silicates, which are the heavier materials, to be found closer to the sun because they would have had a greater gravitational pull on them. And so when we look at our rocky planets and they do have silicates and they do have those heavier gases, sort of makes sense. So close to the sun, it's still too hot for your lighter elements to condense. So things like hydrogen and helium, just way, way too hot in the inner parts of our solar system that they couldn't condense. But further out, we've got our gas giants. Now, when we think about the orbits of the planets, the further out they get, the longer their orbital path is. And that means upon their creation, 
they were moving around a track that had more material. And so planets like Jupiter and Saturn were actually able to accrete more material and grow much quicker. And that's a, a process that just got faster and faster. As they grew bigger and bigger, they were able to accrete more material. Yeah, be able to pull faster, more faster. and more material, yeah. And out there, it's cold enough that hydrogen and helium gas could then be pulled into these huge gas uh, or rocky cores that were first being formed into the gas planets that we have now. But how do you ensure that material from the inner solar system and the outer parts of the solar system didn't mix kind of very on, uh, very early on in the history? Why did we have that great divide? Now we can actually still detect the great divide today. Uh, it's a relatively empty stretch of space that lies um, near Jupiter, just beyond the asteroid belt. We detect its presence because uh, when we move inwards from the sun from that point, we actually find most of the planets and asteroids tend to carry very low abundances of organic molecules. And as we go further out from the sun from that line, we actually find a different picture. So almost everything in the distant parts of our solar system is made up of materials that are rich in carbon. So there are things like methane and ethane, very, very uh, carbon-rich organic molecules, and they are found in abundances in the outer planets compared to the inner planets. Yeah. And interestingly, I mean, for, we can reference uh, Titan, for an example, where you said we have a lot of methane, and you find a lot of methane out on Titan. Titan is featured so heavily in our Look Up podcast as well, a great uh, kind of add in there as well and actually Uranus and Neptune in the outer layers of their atmospheres yeah. have a lot of methane and methane, that's what yeah. gives them that distinctive blue color it's absorbing the red light reflecting more of the blue light so there's evidence there that there is so much more carbon rich organic molecules in the outer parts of our solar system I believed and actually many scientists assumed that Jupiter was responsible for that great divide. It was so massive that it acted like a gravitational barrier. So anything that was trying to make its way from the outer solar system into the inner solar system, as Jupiter was orbiting around the sun, its gravitational pull was enough to pull in those bits making their way to the inner solar system that they never actually crossed the orbit of Jupiter. But the scientists that conducted this study we're not convinced by that idea. And I think it's really great that scientists don't just accept the ideas that we have today, that they do go out and kind of think of other possibilities. Yeah. It's how science evolves. So the scientists used a series of computer simulations to explore what Jupiter's role in the evolving solar system was. Now, what they found is that while Jupiter is big, in the early parts of its formation, it was probably never big enough to entirely block the flow of material in towards the sun. At that point in its formation, it didn't have enough gravity to stop all the pieces of material coming from the outer part of the solar system being pulled inwards towards the sun. Now, we talked about people detecting exoplanets for the last 30 years or so. So scientists have been operating an observatory in Chile called the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or ALMA for short, and they've noticed something quite unusual about some of the distant stars that this telescope has been observing. So when we look at other very young star systems and we're watching them form, they are also surrounded by disks of gas and dust, just like our sun would have been. And when they look in infrared light, what they see is something that looks a bit like um, a tiger's eye. 
They're looking in infrared light because dust is very good at emitting infrared light, and that means we can see where that dust and gas is. The reason it looks like a tiger's eye is because you've got the bright glow of the star forming in the center, you've got the disk of gas and dust around, but actually there is a dark bit, a dark ring of material between the star and the rest of the gas and the dust. Now, scientists conducting this study suggest that if a similar ring existed in our own solar system billions of years ago, it could theoretically be responsible for the Great Divide. That's interesting. And that's because that dark ring that you're seeing is potentially a region that has less gas and dust. We would have alternating bands of gas and dust. So you'd have a region where there's lots of gas and dust, high pressure, this dark ring where there isn't much gas and dust, so lower pressure, and then back out to this big ring of gas and dust surrounding the whole thing with high pressure. And these alternating bands of gas and dust with high and low pressure act like uh, the great divide of the, the Rocky Mountains in North America. So if we think about a, a mountain peak, if you get to the peak, you're either going to fall one way or, or the, the other. other. And that's what this great divide did. It stopped material essentially crossing from one side or the other. It was like the, the mountain peak that they could not cross. And so two different sinks emerged, the sink from which the rocky planets formed and the sink from which the gas planets formed. But we don't think that it was a perfect barrier. And thankfully so, because some of the outer solar system material we think may have still climbed this great divide and made its way from the outer part of the solar system to the inner part of the solar system. And those fugitives that crossed the boundary were very important for the evolution on our planet. Because those materials, remember, carbon-rich molecules, are what we need for life on Earth. Yeah. It's those volatile materials like methane, like the carbon dioxide, that actually have given rise to life here on Earth, given us water on our planet. So potentially, looking at these other star systems, we're coming up with a new or an alternate theory about why we have this kind of barrier in our solar system that what stopped our rocky planets and our gas planets from sharing material and why they formed the way they have. I'm still a little skeptical about this. Um, and that's because when we look at these planetary systems, often when we see a dark ring of material with less gas and dust, it is often where a planet is starting to form. It's starting to pull in that gas yeah. and dust and clear it. So at some point in that dark line, there will be a planet forming, but it's not bright enough. And it's true that when we look at some of these disks, these protoplanetary disks, we can see gaps or rings inside in the disk. And as you say, once it's accumulated enough material, we can see the planets starting. in that disk. Yeah. The only kind of caveat to that is that some of the gaps that form, uh, and there is a recent uh, story released about this, some of the gaps that have formed, these dark rings, are actually too big to be held responsible from, uh, by the formation of a planet. So it can't be a single planet that has whipped up so much material that it's created such a large gap. So one of the things they think it might be is multiple planets forming together in that same dark band. But again, they need to go back and they need to observe this. They need to confirm it. 
Or perhaps these large gaps could be just like the Great Divide that these scientists think we had in our solar system that stopped the sharing of material from the inner and outer parts of our solar system. So that's my story for this month. I absolutely love stories about our solar system in the sense that if we can really understand our place and what's happening in our solar system, it might give us a better idea about other star systems too but vice versa we're learning so much about our own solar system by looking at other star systems out there yeah and interestingly if we had never discovered exoplanets or we hadn't even started to look perhaps for these protoplanetary disks where stars are forming we would never even have questioned our understanding of our own solar system or why there was this divide so everything does tie into everything else when we're studying astronomy so it's that was a fantastic story excellent well i've loved your story too that does bring us to the end of our podcast i hope you enjoyed listening to our stories we're going to put our stories uh down to a twitter poll which will be released at the start of the month on our twitter page at rog astronomers uh you'll be able to pick your favorite new story then we do have our results from our last podcast uh, we had a grand total of 38 votes. We had our story about the ultra-massive black hole that had been detected. And then there was your story, Patricia, the fizzing lakes on Titan. And it was a close call. But actually, I think I've just managed to claim a, a win from you this month or for last month's story. So it was 55% that voted for the ultra-massive black hole and a very close 45% for your fizzing lakes on Titan. So I think we're back at one all, which means we're going for the win again with our February stories. Now, you can also find our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. And we have a whole host of different podcasts, including interviews with scientists on our SoundCloud page. And you can find some of the podcasts there. We hope you enjoyed listening to our news stories and our podcast for this month. And we'll see you back in March. (laughs) 